Uh, we're going to get started in just a second. We're going to be in Mark this week. So we finished Matthew last week and we'll begin Mark this week. Um, before we get going, tonight afterwards, um, so the women's retreat is going to be going on this weekend. And so we're going to need to, while we have some manpower here, um, we're going to need to set up some chairs or unset up chairs, move them. So John Adele um, is going to be the man to tell us exactly what Aaron Adele wants. So as far as, <laughs> as, far as uh, the chairs and stuff. So um, if you can afterwards, please hang around for a couple minutes and help us stack and move them. I know at the very least we're going to um, leave a certain number on the floor and take a certain number off, but then we've got to move around some Bibles. So that'll take a second because we've got this problem that we stack all the chairs and then there's, the Bibles are in them. And there's no possible way to get to them unless you unstack all of them. And it's very annoying. So we're going we're gonna to remedy that problem tonight, and John's going to lead it. So um, let's pray, and we'll get right to it. Lord, we come to you now, and we're thankful for our, our time uh, tonight to be able to stop in the middle of the week and consider the book of Mark. Um, as we work through this, Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, a perspective of this book that allows us to, to know what it's about, um, to know how it could be helpful, to know how it differs um, from other Gospels, um, to understand what was going on during that time, to understand the influences um, that, were, uh, that existed on the writer, Mark. And um, ultimately, Lord, through this, we don't just want to gain little tidbits of knowledge. We want to be closer to you. We want to understand more why this Gospel is such good news. And we want to understand more... Um, what our story is, and how it affects life today. Uh, we are thankful for Christ. We're thankful for having access to you in Christ, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a little reminder that this is one of those weird Bible studies where the goal is not to go deeper. That's kind of a weird thing, because usually it's like, oh, we're doing a Bible study on Matthew or on Mark, and it's like, so we're going to go a little deeper than normal and, and try to find the little nuggets of truth and the treasures that we may otherwise not see. But that's not at all the hope for these studies. Um, the, the goal of these studies is to gain a bird's eye view, to get an overview. They're overview studies, survey studies, to kind of get a different perspective than you would normally have with just a snapshot as you're reading through. So I was watching John and Kate Plus 8, which is really just Kate plus eight, because she dropped John like a bad habit. It's really sad. Does everyone know what I'm talking about? So now you're all just as guilty as I am. Yeah, we do. We do. Anyway, um, it, it was my wife's fault. She likes to watch that garbage, and I was just in the room. And so um, it's, uh, they were doing this rerun. And generally, um, I, can't, um, I can't really stand her. And so, um, and I mean that in a loving way. I love Kate, Kate, not Lindsay. Um, I can't stand Kate um, generally. Um, I love her, um, you know, as, as a fellow human being. But um, so we're watching it, and it's these reruns. And it's let's take a look back over the last, you know, 13 years or whatever of you raising all these kids by yourself. And the first clip is like her screaming at a two-year-old for getting gum. And it's like, 
your, your teddy bear's going in the trash. And she was like, oh. And it was awkward. It was like the most awkward, is this what this whole show is going to be? Like her seeing herself be horrible to her children? We all see it. But, but it's like, is this what this is going to be? And so it's a snapshot. And she's like, oh, oh, I'm sorry, Alex. I, I shouldn't have said that. that. Who cares about bubble gum on a blankie? Like there's so much bigger. And it's interesting because as, as you're watching it, she's like, oh, why was I making such a big deal of that? And then it would go to the next one. She's like, oh, if I could redo that, I wouldn't have done it like that. And it was awkward and it was painful, but it, it got me thinking. Um, I was like, there's got to be something redemptive. Oh, here's something. Um, that what she gained through that was this different perspective. In the moment, it was totally different than when she zoomed way out and was like, oh, well, that, that's different. Oh, I probably wouldn't see it that way because the snapshot of the moment is different from zooming out and taking a big picture of you. That's really what we're doing in these, these studies. We're not plumbing its depths to find new treasures. We're sitting at 30,000 feet, gaining perspective that will help us in knowing what the main point of Mark is and how we might be better informed when the time comes to dig deeper into it. So, last week we were in Matthew. So let's do a little bit of recap and then we'll move into Mark. What were some things that made Matthew's gospel unique and distinct from other gospels? What were some things that made Matthew's gospel unique and distinct from other gospels? Or we can start with what they have in common. Yes. Matthew was written from a very Jewish perspective. What else? Fantastic. In what ways was it more Jewish? Yeah. So Matthew picks up Old Testament prophecies and shows how Christ is the fulfillment. Those prophecies in nature being very Jewish... Um, or else they wouldn't exist. And so part of the way that his gospel account was more Jewish was let's pick up the prophecies and show how they were fulfilled. What were some of those prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ? Born in Bethlehem. Born in Bethlehem. Virgin birth. This is one of those gimme questions where there's like a hundred and like thousands of right answers really. And I just, any of them, just throw them out. Born in Bethlehem, virgin, virgin birth. What? Pierced side. I thought you said nearsighted. I was like, I don't know if he was. <laughs> he might have been. Pierced side. His legs were not broken. Nazareth. What else? Say that again? Gambling. Yeah. Gambling for his clothes, his robe, the foot of the cross there. What else? Healed the sick, healed the blind. And then even the way he talked about the healing was prophesied. So the healings themselves were prophesied, but then the way that he was like quiet about it for a certain point, that was prophesied as well. So um, Matthew's gospel was far more Jewish for all those reasons. What did history have to do with Jesus' identity?
He fulfilled it. When Jesus showed up, it was as though everything previous to Jesus had been written and woven together by a God who is all about details to get to the part about Jesus. It was as though he was personifying the fullness of history. And it says the pleroma, in the fullness of time, Christ came onto the scene. And it was, it was a moment in time that was, that was significant and it was different. And everything that had happened before that was fulfilled. It was as though it was all coming together to get to that Point. And so history, if it could be personified, it would be personified in Christ as, as all of it leading there and then him fulfilling the things that were unknown up until that point. How did the Jews respond to Jesus' teaching? Yeah, most of them didn't like it. So what did it mean to be a Jew in first century um, in the, the first century time here, first century Judaism? What did, it, what, was it mean, what did it mean to be a Jew? Yep. You followed the law? Were all the Jews the same? No. What, what were they? Yeah, a bunch of them were very indifferent. Some who, most of the people who lived um, in Israel during this time didn't fall in the categories. They just were working and providing for their families because there was, there was an infrastructure and a government and a middle class where that could exist. So what were the divisions of the Jews? Sadducees? What were the Sadducees? Who were they? The aristocrats. And if a Sadducee wanted to find someone who liked them, what would they have to look for? Another Sadducee. That's right. Okay, and so you said Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? Reformers, teachers of the law. So they start, how did they start out? How did the Pharisees start out? Good. How? How were they good? Yeah, R.C. Sproul says they're like the first Puritans. They were the reformers. They wanted things to be right. They saw how it was wrong. They saw how Roman rule was affecting things. Let's come in. Let's set it straight. Let's be more rigid. And then by the time Christ came onto the scene, in first century Judaism, first century Christianity... They were just self-righteous hypocrites. And so there were also the Essenes and the Zealots. Who were the Zealots? We haven't talked about the Essenes. I don't know if we ever will. I just like passing over them as if, you know, we have the right to do that. I don't know why. Who were the Zealots? What? Super passionate ones. What were they known for in, as far as the way they, they stood up against um, oppression? They were fighters. Yeah, they'd take up arms. And they were very, very passionate. So... Last week, we considered Jesus as the son of David. This week, and especially next week, we're going to consider Jesus as the son of man. So Matthew's gospel was far more Jewish, and so son of David, you know, the intro to Matthew is, is the son of David, they bring in Abraham. It's a very, very Jewish intro. Everything who, that identified who Jesus was had to do with his Jewishness. But he wasn't just Jewish, he brought new things that made it clear what it meant to be a new Israel, that he was the the, the Jacob, the better Jacob, the obedient son who Jacob should have been but never was, that whole thing. And so he was the son of David. This week in Mark, we're looking at the phrase, the son of man. And we'll look at it much more closely next week. A lot of this is going to be sort of ramping up to Jesus' teachings on himself. So in, uh, in this book, which I, I just like for you all to know about it, because there's nothing new under the sun. And when I thought, man, how can we go through the Bible quickly? If only someone has a resource, and this guy, Dever, 
has promises made, Old Testament, and promises kept, New Testament. And he's a, uh, a freakishly able human being who taught through a book of the Bible every Sunday until it was done. And so um, we're, we're, we're not that awesome, but we're working on two weeks at a time on Wednesdays. So if you want to dig deeper, you want to kind of know where some of this comes from, this is a great resource. If you're looking at survey study of, any, of anything in the Bible, this resource and the other one are just, they're really, really good. I want you all to just have an eye on that, know that it exists, and it's where a lot of our, the formation and the structure of our study comes from. So Dever, in that book, makes this statement. He says, recent decades have tried to uncover who Jesus was. What, have y'all seen anything recent about trying to, like, new evidence of who Jesus is or like a real you know, scholarly approach. Has anyone ever seen anything on TV about that? Yes? yes? What did it look like? What? Well, it was like a history channel thing. Yeah. They kind of portrayed Jesus and asked questions about, well, did he have children? Was he married? Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Has anyone else ever seen any documentaries sort of trying to very just historically, factually explain who Jesus is? Cool. Yeah. Well, there are there have been a number of things. There was something recently, like a couple years ago, about they'd found the tomb, and then let's see if it's really empty. You know, like this kind of like, you know, y'all keep watching. But one of the thing, one of the observations here is is uh, recent decades have tried to uncover who Jesus was through what Dever calls the assured results of modern dispassionate scholarship and previously unavailable evidence. So we're going to learn who Jesus is through the assured results of modern, we're not old school, we're modern, dispassionate, so we're not some weird religious person, we're just scholars, modern dispassionate scholarship and previously unavailable evidence. And he says, and all of them provide the definitive portrait of Jesus the Jew, Jesus the sectarian fanatic Jew, or Jesus the cynic philosopher, or Jesus the healer, or Jesus the sage, or Jesus the teacher, or Jesus the social justice man, or Jesus the rabbi, or Jesus the Pharisee, or Jesus the humanist, or Jesus the end of the world is coming guy, or Jesus the rationalist, or Jesus the visionary, and he says, I could go on and on and on, because this impartial, scholarly, dispassionate observation creates hundreds of Jesuses, if not thousands of Jesuses. He says, I could go on and on. Historian Paul Johnson comments a few years ago, using the same texts and scholarly apparatus, dozens, perhaps hundreds of different Jesuses can be constructed. So if you want to go on the most modern you know, evidence and approach, you'll find that it's not quite as... Uh, as objective as you might think, because you can come up with any picture of Jesus you really want as you, you know, peel back the pages and kind of shape it how you like. This is why the Gospels are so very important, 
Because if you take the evidence from the Gospels and you understand what's going on, that's when you get the clearest picture of, in fact, who Jesus was and what was going on during that, that time in history and what had led up to it and, and what happened and who was there and what was affected, what was observed, who stated what, and how did it affect them in the coming decades. So the Gospel accounts are incredibly important. They provide eyewitness, first-hand accounts of who Jesus was through his own teachings and observations. We don't have to go to other resources. This is timeless. Remember, we believe this to be breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that we would be equipped to do any good work. So if you want to do good work in understanding who Jesus is, we have to have this. This is our best resource and the only one that is not flawed. So many think that Mark was the first gospel written. Many think that Mark was the first gospel written. That's an interesting little tidbit of information. If in it, we find this following outline and summary. Here, here's a, a little brief outline. You have the first part is Jesus and Mark, and it's the story of Jesus. And then the second part is Jesus and others, which is responses to Jesus. The third part is Jesus talking about Jesus, which is the teaching of Jesus. And then the last part is Jesus and you, which is the reason for Jesus. That's going to be our outline for this week and for next week. The story of Jesus, responses to Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and the reason for Jesus. So, where did Mark learn everything he included in his gospel? What do you all think? Where did Mark learn everything he included in his gospel? What? Jesus, fantastic use of a, of, a, of a very likely yes answer. Yeah. He grew up around it. Okay. So what? Was Mark the nephew of Barnabas? I'm actually not sure. Does anyone know if Mark was a nephew of Barnabas? It's possible. I'd have to look it up. See, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to be honest with you. I have no idea. It is John Mark, yes. So that is? Okay. John being his, what, Roman name, and Mark being his Jewish name, I think is how that works. I did not know this. Turn to Acts 12.12. We're going to study Mark, but look over at Acts. So I've studied Mark. I've taught through all of Mark before. And somehow I did not know this little bit of information. And if you all all know it, don't tell me. Don't spoil it for me. Don't ruin it for me. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about my new bit of information. In Acts 12, 12, this is after Peter is rescued. In verse 6, it says, Now when Herod was about to bring him out that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. The angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And that's how Peter's jailbreak happened. It was pretty awesome. And look what happens in verse 12. It says, When he realized this, Peter came to himself. He said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent an angel, rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And in verse 12, it says, When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. This is likely when Mark first encountered Peter. Now, like Moore said, Mark grew up around these things, 
Um, and when he first encountered Peter was here in Acts 12. And if you look at 1 Peter 5.13, Mark is mentioned as being there with Peter, and he even talks about, he says, and greetings to you from me and from Mark, my son. Now, it wasn't actually, they're not talking like baby daddy stuff here. It was a a term, it was endearment, it was closeness. Um, But he mentions Mark being with Peter. And according to tradition, Mark wrote down Peter's account near the end of Peter's ministry in Rome. So where did Mark learn everything included in this gospel? The reality is, a lot of what Mark included in this gospel, a lot of what he wrote down, he was told firsthand by Peter. And that helps us to understand why Mark's gospel is the way that it is. We're going to read a lot of text tonight. But as we read, I want you to think, notice when you see, I could see how that's affected by Peter. Because now, as I'm reading it, understanding that it was largely affected by Peter, a lot of the firsthand accounts, there's details in there where it's like, someone had to be there to see, oh, that's where Peter sat with Mark, and they wrote it down. What would you expect to hear if you knew that Peter was telling a guy what to write down? What kind of of details would there be if it's Peter? Intense. Absolutely. Yeah. What? Action verbs, yes. I cut his ear off, yes. ADD, ADD a little bit, yeah. It's kind of kind of jumpy. What else? Passionate, quick, action oriented. So Mark is the briefest and the most direct of the Gospels. That's the first thing we're going to look at. Well. Peter was pretty direct. And so it's interesting. He was the briefest and most direct. And by, we know that if you go, turn back to Mark, if you're already in Acts, go ahead and turn back to Mark. I mean, think about what we looked at with Matthew last week, right? The intro, the genealogy, the uh, John the Baptist stuff, Mary being visited, the birth. Um, by 116, Jesus is calling his first disciples. So Mark doesn't waste any time jumping right into the action of what's going on. By 116, Jesus is already calling his first disciples. So here's what we're going to look at. Here's the outline that I want you to know. And this is where, again, I've said it a lot and I'll say it again. It's really good to take notes because this is an overview study. It gives you a bird's eye view and a different perspective than you would normally have. And you're not going to remember everything from it. So it's good to write details down, especially like an outline or um, an overview detail, because the hope is that you will have a set of notes in your own journal that when you're like, if someone brings up Mark or something that's in Mark that you remember, you can go back and look at, oh, if we want to talk about the kingdom of God, we can go here. If we want to talk about um, the action of Jesus's life, we can go here. So in in chapters one through eight, we see Jesus's ministry in Galilee establishing himself as a teacher and a miracle worker. So 1 through 8, Mark wastes no time getting into Jesus' ministry in Galilee as a teacher and as a miracle worker. And then about halfway through chapter 8 is when we see the big turning point that we saw in Matthew. And that was whose confession? Peter's confession. So this is important. And about halfway through 8 through verse 10, or through chapter 10, We see Peter's confession of Jesus as a Messiah. And after that, there's a special focus on those who are closest to Jesus. So we see the action, we see the ministry, he's a teacher, 
He's a healer. And then Peter makes this confession, and it's sort of like Jesus shuts the doors and brings those closer to him who have been walking closest with him. And he addresses them in a particular manner in 8 and a half through 10. He warned them of his coming death, resurrection, and warned them of the cost of following him as they went toward Jerusalem. So Galilee, all of this ministry going on, all of this healing going on, Jesus is established as someone who's very significant in the way of healing and teaching. He gathers them close. They're moving toward Jerusalem. And as they're going toward Jerusalem, he tells them, look, I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected. And this is what it is going to cost for you to be a follower of me. And he begins to get a little more detailed and intimate with those who he's closest with. And then in, verse, in chapters 11 through 13, they go into Jerusalem. And how is Jesus greeted? Y'all know this part. We've read this part, right? How is he greeted? Well. He's greeted very well. Hosanna. Hosanna. Praise to the king. And so he rides in on a, a, a stallion, right? A, a Budweiser horse, right? A Cladsdale. No, he rides in on a donkey's colt. And so he's greeted as he enters. And then what we see is it opens back up a little bit. He went to the Galilee ministry, and then he went to the close group, and they're moving towards Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, it's time to go public. It's time to go national, in fact. And so here he goes national, and Jesus is teaching in Jerusalem over the last week of his life. This is the last week of his life. And then in 14, chapter 14, you see, I mean, this was drawn out a lot more in Matthew. It's drawn out a lot more in, in John, which is the narrative. In, in chapter 14, you see Last Supper, betrayal, arrest, and his arraignment before the Sanhedrin. Last Supper, betrayal, arrest, and arraignment before the Sanhedrin. And then chapter 15, you see his appearance before Pilate, his conviction, mockery, crucifixion, death, and burial. It all happens quickly as Mark's telling the story. And it makes it a, a bit intense. And then the last chapter is resurrection. Chapter 16 is resurrection. Mark's style is vigorous and gives a lively account of Jesus' life, highlighting action over teaching. His account highlights the action over the teaching, giving the impression of a very dramatic story. It's like if you're watching, there's a difference between watching a lecture online and watching someone um, tell the, the actions of a story. It's the difference between a movie and a lecture. And so here, it's, it's, it's very engaging as you read through it. In fact, I'll challenge y'all. By next week, I, I, I challenge you to read through it. If you read it out loud, at a normal pace, it takes one hour in Mark. So I didn't challenge you in Matthew because it takes like four. But here it takes one. So, and it moves quickly, and it's very, um, very active. So um, his favorite word, guess what his favorite word is? Anyone want to guess what Mark's favorite word is, what he uses a lot? What? Immediately. That's right. Immediately. He, he says, uh, immediately they left their nets. Immediately he called them. Immediately he entered. Immediately there was. 
And so Mark is all about the word immediately. He's fired up. It's like you can seriously watch. You can see Peter like, and then, and then, and then Mark's like, yeah, 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 immediately. I mean, you can see them having this interaction as he, as he, as he uh, writes it down. So Luke covers 25 parables. Matthew covers 20 parables. Mark covers seven. So he doesn't get as deep into the teaching as he does the action in the life of their movement in the ministry of Jesus. However... This is where it's interesting. This is where his is different from Matthew. Mark's gospel is more brief, but there are more areas, there are some areas where he has a lot more detail. So though Mark's gospel is more brief, there are some areas where his attention to detail is far more vivid, far more easy to picture in your head. So we're going to look at a few of those. So look at 5, chapter 5. I want you all to get a good taste of the, the vivid kind of detail. Think about the way it is in other Gospels where it's maybe a little bit shorter, maybe not so specific. But man, his, his detail is vivid. Look at 5, 2 through 6. It says, well, in, in 1, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Grasnes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. That's pretty vivid, right? Like, you could close your eyes as I'm reading that, and you picture this crazy dude with a demon possessing him, howling out like a wild animal, cutting himself with stones, and then he sees Jesus, and he runs, and he throws himself down at his feet. His account is very vivid. Look over at 6.30. We're just getting a taste. Remember, we're, we're not digging too deep. We're just getting this bird's eye view. 6.30. The apostles turned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught, and he said to them, "'Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while.'" For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many Things You can see the setting. You can see Jesus' compassion. You can see what it was like, the disciples looking for rest, seeing the crowds, and Jesus is like, they need a leader. They need someone who will show them some love. And Mark captures that well. Look at 7.31. 7.31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. I mean, that's a lot of details just right there. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear 
and the mute speak. And then finally, look at this weird one in 14. Look over at Mark 14. In Mark 14, this is, Jesus has betray, been betrayed by Judas. He foretells Peter's denial. He prays in Gethsemane. And then look what happens. In the betrayal, it says in verse 43, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. (laughs) Isn't it funny that Mark is writing down what Peter's telling him? And one of them standing by (laughs) lopped his ear off. It's funny. funny. Um, And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but left the scriptures to be, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. They all being his followers left him and fled. And look at verse 51. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What a weird thing to include, right? This is like Jesus paying the ultimate price. And then there was this guy. This naked guy who they grabbed his linen cloth and he just took off naked and left it. Why is that there? Most historians and commentators believe it's Mark. Mark included that detail. It's sort of a signature to the piece. A little naked cameo in a really weird way. Um, They believe that the young man fleeing was Mark because there's nothing before it or after it. It's just... He ran away naked. So um, it's interesting. He doesn't mention Peter because Peter's sitting there telling the story. And then he's like, and there was this guy kind of naked in a weird spot. You know, it was like Jesus and stuff. And then he ran away. So anyway, um, interesting detail there. Given the details that are recounted, um, this is further evidence that these are details that Peter would have remembered. I mean, you could really, seriously, you could almost picture Peter telling a story as Mark writes it down with excitement. And then we'll continue to see that influence as we look at these other passages. Mark is very honest about people's responses to Jesus. Mark is very honest about people's responses to Jesus. Look at chapter 3. Three, we're going to look at verse 20. Then he... Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So, have y'all ever had a weird, like I have, and I I might be alone, have you ever had like a weird family reunion where you get that one crazy uncle or something that's like, all right, he's had way too much beer, let's... Let's, someone's got to calm him down. He's out of control. He's lost his mind. He's shooting off his mouth. Or five, whatever. Has anyone had that weird occurrence where like, 
the family is together and they're decided, okay, this family member has lost it. <laughs> has anyone had that experience? Nope. Am I the only? Okay, seriously. Okay, has anyone ever pictured that experience in their head? Like right now? Picture that experience in your head. Like everyone has gathered. The whole family is like, Uncle Doug, just random, random uncle name. Uncle Doug has lost his mind. Does anyone have Uncle Doug's car keys? You start treating him like, okay, I'm gonna, okay, we're gonna have to reel this in. He's lost his mind. Y'all, that's how Jesus' family was responding to him. He's lost his mind. Jesus has gone crazy. So the question is, here, what might this do to people's responses in the future? In the future, when someone reads Mark, what might that do to them if they read that Mark decided to include uh, when the family heard what he was doing, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. What might that do? How might you view Mark's account? Credibility. credibility. All day long. Why does he give it credibility? Yeah. Yeah. If the goal was just to, just to win you over via propaganda, why would you include any details like his own family thought he was nuts? Because it's honest. It shows the different responses from people. There were a lot of different responses here. There was credibility here. Because of Mark's style and structure, um, as, as we see these kind of details, we see this credibility, we see the way that he, he hits things fast, he gets to the action of it, he keeps people engaged. Because of that, his gospel is a good one to use for evangelism. And like, if you're wanting to utilize something for evangelism, if you're engaging someone with, with text and maybe they've never heard it, um, Mark is a great gospel to use. And also just introducing Jesus in the gospel to new believers. If you're working with your kids on something, Mark is wonderful. It's brief. It keeps you involved. But it, it, it tells you the gospel of Jesus from this perspective that's engaging. So like I said, that, that response of his family acting like he's a crazy uncle is, is helpful because what we see is that there are lots of different responses. Lots of different responses to Jesus throughout Mark. Matthew was really focused on the Jewish response. Because the Jews were the ones who were being um, directly spoken to, um, especially from Matthew's perspective as sort of the bureaucratic tax-collecting Jewish guy of the time. Other responses. Some believed. So we'll start with the positive. Some believed. Like, that's good news for us, right? (laughs) Because had no one believed, we wouldn't believe. We stand on the shoulders of people who have passed on the faith generation to generation. So here's what I want to look at. Look at 2.5. I'm going to bullet point, survey, look at these people who believed. In 2.5, look at 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Uh, Here he is, at home again. They're bothering him again. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now again, we read these stories like Mark draws you in. It's like, this happened. We read these stories in sort of a sterile way. 
imagine if we're sitting here teaching and it's like, you hear, kind of look up. And imagine it was so crowded that people couldn't get in. And then some joker is being lowered on like a gurney, like a little table down the middle of the room. Wouldn't that get everyone's attention? Jesus is teaching and he's like, huh, look at that. And they came bringing now to him a paralytic. When the crowd, they couldn't get near him, they removed the roof. And when they had made an opening, they lowered down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So that's one person who believed. Look at 534. Start in 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, this lady had, had touched him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? They're like, uh, Everyone touched you, Jesus. It's a crowd. And he's like, No, no, no. Something was different. Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened, this woman who had a discharge of blood, what had happened, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So that's another one who has faith and believed. Look at, uh, look at 5.23. Same page. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. He was beside the sea. Then came out one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little girl is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So you see him believing as well, believing that Jesus, in fact, could accomplish um, what they needed most. Look at 729. We'll start in verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. But she answered, Yes, Lord. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon was gone. Look at 1052. This is blind Bartimaeus. Verse 49, 1049. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying, Take heart, get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up, came to Jesus. And Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. And finally, look at 1539. Jesus utters a loud cry and breathes his last in 37. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom in 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, 
In this way, he breathed his last, last breath. He said, truly this man was the Son of God. So here's my question. What do all those people have in common? The, the ones who believed. What do they all have in common? Faith. They had an encounter with Christ. There was an event. What existed before Jesus showed up? They had a need. Every one of them was sick. Every one of them had a need. Every one of them who's mentioned, they're not the close ones, right? They're the outsiders. So every one of these who you see just again and again and again in Mark, they believe, they had faith, Lord, heal me. They had this need and they cried out to God. And they weren't the ones who were close to him. They weren't necessarily the, the Jews who were following him. They weren't the disciples who had been called. But they were the ones who were sick. And those were the ones who, over and over again, are the ones who show belief and who show faith and who are made well and who are healed throughout Mark. Some believed. Some were confused. Let's look at those who were confused. Look at Mark 10. This is like the most turning you'll ever do on a Wednesday night because it's good. Mark 10, verse 10. Jesus is teaching about divorce. It says, And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife, marries another, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And so he had already gone through the teaching, and they're like, Hey, can you, uh, one more time. One more time. So they were confused, and they didn't understand what he said, and so they asked again. And then over in 637, look at 637. Oh, it says in 13, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked him. Rebuked him. Stop. Don't bring the children over. Oh, oh, you want the children to come. Okay. So they're confused about the teaching on divorce. They're confused about, what, is it okay if the children touch Jesus? And then look at, what did I just say, uh, 637. 637. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? They were confused. And they offered up the easiest solution they could find. He said, give them something to eat. And he's, they're like, we've got just 200 denarii, and we'll go, we go get some bread at the store. But there's a lot of people. And so they're not getting it. They're not getting it a lot. And so they say, um, what do you want us to do here? He said, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. They said, we have five and two fish. So they're like, we can buy some. <laughs> As if that's so much more than what they already had. And then he, he, he explains things to him. And then look over in uh, 52 of the same chapter. It says, uh, uh, just start in 48. This is the Jesus walking on water. And, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand about teaching on divorce. They didn't understand about the children. 
They were confused about the whole loaves thing, and then he freaked them out even more by walking on water. So they were wigging out over the walking on the water, but they were still thinking about the loaves. They were very, very confused. And look at 649. Or actually, that's what I just read, 4950. Look over at 714. 714. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. So here they are. That's such a good teaching. Wait till everybody leaves. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? And he said to them, Are you also without understanding? Do you not see... That whatever goes into a person from outside can defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Does anyone else have another uh, translation other than ESV? Anybody? What's your say? about uh, What does your say in verse 18? Okay. Um, did Jesus think what he was saying was complicated? No. Jesus' goal is not to be misunderstood by his disciples. Can we agree on that? He didn't have a goal of saying things in a way where they couldn't understand it. I mean, he says it where they can understand it. He te- he's, I mean, he's, I, would, I would rival, he was, he was the best teacher that anyone's ever had. And then again and again, you see this, do you not still understand? Are you also without understanding? Are you still without understanding? Do you still not perceive? Do you not see? When you see phrases like that, it's clear that Jesus does not, he's not trying to be cryptic. Um, so my question is, what do all of these people have in common? <laughs> yeah, that's a bummer, isn't it? So all the other people who were outsiders, who were on the, you know on the fringes, who were sick, who were blind, who who hadn't they weren't in the you know woven into society, they were they were maligned. All those people, we see lots of belief. And then within the disciples, we see a whole lot of confusion. It's interesting. Dever says, Jesus is most critical of the disciples' failings in this gospel. Do you think Peter might have had influence on that? You see how that plays out? In, in this gospel, Jesus is most critical of of the disciples' failings, which may have something to do with the fact that Peter was the gospel's source. How, why, why, why? why? Why is that the reality? How might that have played out? Yeah. And, and who was real sharply rebuked by Jesus? And who was really outspoken about how awesome they were going to be for Jesus? Right? And so it's interesting that Mark's gospel includes the most sharp responses. Are you still without understanding? Do you still not know? Because you can just picture Peter sitting there going, Mark, he taught us, and none of us got it. So we waited until everybody left, and we asked him. And we did that 
over and over and over again because you see Peter telling Mark, oh man, I was like, no, I'll, everyone else will turn from you and I won't. And then that little girl came up and I said, I don't know who he is. And, and then I was like, you are, you are the Christ. And he was like, I'm going to build my church on you. And then he said he's going to die. And I was like, Jesus, don't you talk like that. And then he called me Satan and told me to get behind him. Like, you see what I'm saying? You can see Peter's influence on Mark here and why Mark's would be, who were the ones who believed? The outsiders. Who were the ones who were really confused? The disciples, who had a close look but still had much to learn. They weren't chosen because they were brilliant. If you look at the disciples' life, it's like, I just want to be like one of the disciples because they were so awesome that Jesus was walking around like, you, sir, come on down. And they got to walk with Jesus. No, here, it's very clear. They are feeble and fragile, just like the rest of us. The disciples, as much as anyone, were confused and slow to learn. And finally, some were antagonistic. Some were antagonistic. Look at 2, 5 through 8. It didn't take long for the antagonism to begin. Jesus heals a paralytic, and in verse 5 of chapter 2, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, son, your sins are forgiven. Remember, we just talked about this one. But now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or rise up, take your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, went out before them, so they were all amazed, glorified in God, uh, saying, we, we never saw anything like this. So you see immediately, he does something good, and they want to indict him, Right? It would be like uncovering some terrible, some terrible thing that's going on in society and then someone saying, okay, glad you saw that, but we're going to indict you. You see? You see what's, what's happening there? Here, it's, it's he, he healed someone who needed to be healed, and it's like he did it the wrong way. What he said was wrong, and we're going to indict him. It, it, it still works like that. So here we see that, and then look at 2.15. And he reclined at table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, the self-righteous hypocrites of the time, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, uh, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners." And then, you see in chapter 3, verse 20, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his, her, his family heard it, they went out to seize him, saying, He's out of his mind. So the scribes and the Pharisees were antagonistic, and his family was antagonistic. And the opposition to Jesus became so comprehensive, it engulfed the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jews, the Gentiles, foes, friends, and even family. Some believed, some were confused and needed a little more help, and then some just rejected him and were antagonistic. And it brings us to 1450. This is what we'll close with, because it'll get us ready to look at the Son of Man statements that Jesus has next week. Mark 1450, I already read it once. 
There's the betrayal. Jesus comes up, kisses him on the cheek. And they laid hands on him and seized him in 46. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come out against me, against a robber, with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But left the scriptures, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. In that moment, there had been the, the rejection, there had been the belief, there had been the confusion, there had been the patience. But Jesus knew that all this had to happen. Jesus knew it had to be fulfilled. He says in that moment, let the scriptures be fulfilled. And in that moment, all of his followers left. Peter, who had just chopped off the guy's ear, left. Everyone who watched Judas betray him, he just saw the betrayal. They fled. They ran away. And so, pretty dramatic, right? This is Mark. This is Mark's gospel saying exactly what happened and all the action of it. And so that readies us for next week when we're going to look at the Son of Man and how Jesus viewed Jesus and how that affects us. And we're going to look closely at his teachings about himself and how others responded. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now and we thank you for um, your word. I'm just so thankful for um, biblical authors that you ordained um, before time. I'm thankful for the way you spoke through Matthew and the Jewish perspective that he had and, and the, the, the attentiveness that he had to those details in regards to how they responded to Jesus. And I'm thankful for Mark, how, how you gave him Peter, how after Peter got out of jail, by your design, you took Peter to Mark's mom's house so that he would meet Mark and they would do ministry together and he would hear these firsthand accounts from Peter and write them down for us. And I'm thankful that there are some who will believe because of it. I'm thankful that our, our faith is, is, is fanned and encouraged when we see the gospel truths um, that you have, have spoken through Mark. Uh, We love you, Lord. We thank you for Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, we're going to move chairs. We're going to move chairs. John, you want to... look?